I'd love it if you'd turn to 1 Kings. It's the 11th book of the Old Testament. If you're just moving from the beginning, go 11 books in and you'll find 1 Kings. I'd love it if you'd just take your scripture and open it up with me and that handout. Now, this is a narrative sermon. It's a little bit differently than maybe some of the sermons that we preach where they're very uh, logical, driven, uh, give you points and uh, make a few uh, ap application assessments to those this is a narrative I'm just going to tell the story because that's what this series is this series is tell the story again these are the stories that when you're gathered around with kids or grandkids these are the stories you typically tell them in the scripture and of course throughout the Old Testament all those stories are pointing to one person they're pointing to Jesus and when you're wondering in the Old Testament, what is the meaning of this? What, what's the purpose of this? I think we ought to study the Old Testament with one question in mind. Where is Jesus in this narrative? Where do you find him? What is this pointing to about him? What do we see him being the completion of? Uh, this is a shadow. He's the, the essence of God, the light of God that is the true and right one. And all these are pointing towards him. And 1 Kings chapter 18 is no different. Now, if you remember 1 Kings, if you've got your history in mind, 1 Kings is actually a continuation from 2 Samuel, which is a history of the life of David and the kingdom that is established by God through David. David, of course, has a son whose name is Solomon, and that monarchy started out strong and remarkable because God had given Samuel, excuse me, Solomon, just a great wisdom. He had imparted God's wisdom to him. And uh, the whole world wanted to know about Solomon and, and his wisdom and his understanding. They would come seeking that. But if you remember later in Solomon's life, uh, his life actually degraded in the things of God. He started to, to move away from the word of God and started to allow rebellious idolatry to take root in Israel. It came basically by the women that he included in his life, the multiple wives and concubines that he had, which was never God's plan. And they introduced him to their gods because he was marrying people for political alliance. And those, those people came to the kingdom of God, Israel, and came into God's kingdom with all of their false gods and began to prop them up before the people so after Solomon's death that had pretty much taken root and the kingdom is divided if you remember there's a northern kingdom called Israel and there's a southern kingdom called Judah it's one people but now they're divided in two separate kingdoms and the prophets played their great role in the midst of this history of time they were the ones who were declaring the word of the Lord and would often come to the kings who were living and engaging in the people of Israel, be it the kingdom of the north or the kingdom of the south, and they were declaring to them the word of God and often rebuking them for falling outside of the counsel of God and going in the way that was different from that of God. And that's what's happening in 1 Kings. Beginning in chapter 16, uh, it, we find the introduction of Ahab, who is an absolutely evil king. He's a king of the northern kingdom of Israel. His southern counterpart, Asa, actually leads Judah into a spiritual revival. And while Asa is leading the people down south in revival, Ahab is leading the people up north into greater idolatry. I'm talking about apostasy. 
In fact, the Bible says in summation of Ahab that he did evil in the sight of God greater than all those who had come before him. In other words, take all those evil kings who have been marching Israel towards rebelliousness and idolatry and waywardness, sexual perversion. God says of Ahab, take all those people before and they don't equal the evil that Ahab brought into the kingdom. Now that evil really was was uh, started in a great part by his father Omri but he was not as evil as his son in fact if you were going to give the most wicked man of the year award you might give it to Omri until his son Ahab steps forward to take the kingdom the bible says in first Corinthians, uh, first kings chapter 16 verse 33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger all God and all other kings of Israel who were before him now what distinguished him as this amazingly wicked man it's apostasy that is idolatry on steroids it wasn't just a misguidedness this was full-on serve and worship and sacrifice to another God in a brutal way the sacrifices to Baal were absolutely brutal now this started for him a long time before he was married but when he married Jezebel he married a Phoenician woman who was amped up on the worship of Baal and Asherah now they are connected in the pantheon of the region uh, and just prolific in their sexual perversion especially Asherah's a uh, uh, Canaanite and Phoenician god of fertility and all kinds of, of prostitution was going on in the name of worship and it was just really rank it was just dark and evil Jezebel was unlike any other woman in fact if, if you know an evil woman today you might call her maybe I shouldn't tell you this because you might call her Jezzy in fact, I've had people in my life and I just kind of mutter in the wickedness of my flesh, she's just a jezzy, <laughs> just a jezzy. And not walking in the way of God, not wanting you to walk in the way of God and not wanting anybody to walk in the way of God, that's Jezebel, just a jezzy. Somebody who is going to not be content with spiritual life being private, but she wants spiritual life to be public as long as it has nothing to do with the one true God of Israel. She wants it to be open and rebellious and uh, just dark and sexually driven and perverse. And she wants the whole country to be led that way. So what she does first, because she's wearing the pants in her household and she's wearing the pants in the kingdom. What she does is she takes all the prophets that she can find of Yahweh and she murders them. She has all of them executed that she can find. She wants nobody to have anything to do with Yahweh. She considers that worship to be illegitimate, unacceptable. And Ahab was okay with her deadly attacks and the perverse way that she's spiritually leading the country. Now, if you remember, Baal is a false Canaanite and Phoenician god. And it was thought that Baal controlled the rain, the thunder, the lightning, 
the agricultural produce. You and I know you can't have prolific growth agriculturally without great rain. And so they believed that Baal and the worship of Baal would actually appease him so that he would bring rain to the ground and thereby giving the people food to eat. And so they worship him and they sacrifice to him. And they believe that he is a a God along with Asherah to be a fertility God. So if you were going to have fertility in your family, you needed to worship him. Oddly enough, they would often worship the firstborn child by sacrificing him to Baal in order that they might have more children. So obviously this is completely amok to the things of God. It's a vile religion that they're following. Now one day a stranger comes, his name is Elijah, and he appears before Ahab and here's his declaration. It's on the screen in chapter 17, verse one. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, I stand before God And God is declaring through me to you that the rest of this time, as long as I say there will be no dew or rain, there will be no dew or rain. He makes the declaration. And then by God's instruction, he goes east, crosses the Jordan River over into what is now modern-day Jordan, into that desert region, and God literally hides him out there. In fact, he's so consumed with all of that that not only does God have to hide him but he has to protect him from the famine he would not have survived if it were not for God engaging him in such a way recently we just went over a month at our house without rain Uh, the good news is that when you don't have rain for that length of time you don't have to cut grass very much right the bad news is your grass is brown (laughs) that doesn't look very good for your neighbors you find out who's willing to spend the money on irrigation this time of the year don't you and that's really an inconvenience it actually started raining last Wednesday if you remember there were people coming into church and I was hugging on them and their clothes were wet and I was saying oh wow it feels so good that you've got rain on your back Uh, Kay and I were doing our happy dance because we were getting rain and we knew how badly uh, we needed rain. That That was one month, maybe just over a month. It went 42 months in Samaria. 1,275 days plus without a drop of rain. Not even dew that settled on the ground. Absolutely bone dry. And during that time, God is helping the people to discover a spiritual condition of their lives dry parched not blessed no abundance spiritually and he is bringing his judgment against his people to help them to discover really the stupidity of them calling out to a false god or a false God who is erected like that of a totem pole called Asherah calling out to those gods in order to bring rain in order to hear thunder again and God has just shut it off 
In essence, what he is saying, you can call out to those false gods till the cows come home, and it will not rain until I say so. The God of the creation, the God of the sustaining, and I say no. It's a judgment against Israel. It's a judgment against Ahab, and it is helping them to discover that the gods that they are worshiping and serving have no power whatsoever. There is no Baal God, no Asherah, who can ever produce a single molecule of H2O. And God is helping them to understand that. There is nothing that they can do to bring about rain. Of course, we know that those gods are brought about by the father of lies, Satan himself, and it's propagated by those who are easily deceived, wicked people who want things in a different way than the holy God, people like Ahab and Jezebel. So day after day and week after week, God says there is no rain and there is absolutely no rain. And it has proven the absurdity of crying out to these gods for rain who can produce nothing because they are not real. Then in the 18th chapter of 1 Kings, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. So this is in the third year of the drought. And God says to Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So Elijah is traveling now from what is modern day Jordan and he's crossing the desert. If you've been in that area, you know the Jordanian Valley uh, is really fertile it's where the Jordan River comes through the desert. And there are amazing, great agricultural views in that region because it's, it's the only oasis. Palm trees, uh, wonderful almond trees, great fruit is produced there. You're, you're talking about citrus, wonderful citrus in that area. So he crosses from Jordan, crosses the Jordan River, goes through the desert wilderness, and he's making his way towards Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. And that's where Ahab is going to be, and he's making his move in that direction. Now, he knows in that area, which is normally rich in produce, like I'm talking about Samaria is a, a beautiful, picturesque area with a lot of fertility of the soils, elevated plateaus, and just a richness for, for food production. But as he walks towards the capital, he's walking as the ground is crunching under his feet. And no doubt his throat is, is scratchy because it's dry from a lack of moisture. The heat is dried out and no moisture in the air, not even a, an a ability for dew to settle on the ground. And he's obviously wanting food. He wants the, the wonder of the fruits of that area, but there's no fruit growing in this area right now. And he's walking towards the place where he is going to meet the king. Now everything around him is reminding him of God's judgment. Everything around him is reminding him that God has closed off the heavens. And so with no dew or rain, the crops have failed, and if the crops have failed, the rivers have dried up, and if the rivers have dried up, the wells are dry too. And the people are in desperate situations. Poverty is everywhere as the economy has collapsed, and people are on the edge wondering how they're going to survive and how their family would survive as there's this steady decline in the food source that is available to them. And of course, that causes great civil unrest, doesn't it? And the prophet is seeing all of this. 
recognizing it does not have to be this way in the promised land it does not have to be dry in the promised land God said if you would obey me and worship me and serve me only I would bring the rains I would provide for this land to be a land of flowing milk and honey but they rebelled against him and he has closed off those blessings so now nearing Samaria Elijah comes upon a man named Obadiah and he is a manager of the palace of the king Ahab and they're crossing because Elijah is coming up to meet Ahab and Obadiah is going away from Ahab at his orders to go find some water and some green grass for his mules and horses and they meet on a pathway and Elijah says to Obadiah I want you to go and tell the king that I'm here now if you remember much about Obadiah in this section of scripture you'll notice that Obadiah is one who is after God's heart in fact his very name means that he's a man that when Jezebel was rallying up all the prophets of God and executing them he actually rescued a hundred he put 50 in one cave 50 in another cave he made sure that they had food water and bread he protected them I think we ought to just pause for a minute and recognize here you've got two men that God has used in a unique way in this point in history one Elijah is going to be a man of power and man his voice is like none others and then you've got another man who's quiet he's behind the scenes now some people really rag Obadiah because he's not very forward he's he's a manager of the king's household but yet he's one who serves God he's quietly doing that if if Jezebel knew his heart she would have executed him along with all the prophets I'm certain of that but yet he was doing his work unto the Lord and for the prophets of the Lord in a quiet way can I just say some of you have forward personalities some of you have an aggression and eagerness about you to serve Christ in a very forward way and, and you're you're not uh, holding back you're bold in your witness you're confident you're you're pushing forward constantly and I say go do that to the glory of God do it in the strength and the power of Christ but some of you have a quieter way about you some of you are organized and you are able to accomplish and do maybe behind the scenes in a way that nobody else is knowing and discovering you're providing for God's work in a quiet way but it's accomplishing the work of God whether you're forward or whether you're behind the scenes I tell you do whatever God is calling you to do in the power of the Holy Spirit not everybody has to be the guy standing up front making a bold proclamation from God's word some of you are going to be making a bold proclamation of God's word and his mission in a very quiet way so to the Obadiahs in the room thank you thank you for your service thank you for your diligence thank you for your willingness and to the Elijahs thank you thank you for your boldness your confidence your ability to stand forthrightly before the Lord in Christ and to do his work in ministry well here these two men have met and Elijah says to Obadiah go tell the king that I'm here now Obadiah says uh uh I, I ain't doing that he was very reluctant to that you know why because he said I, I, I know what might happen I go to King Ahab and tell him that you're here 
and the Spirit of God moves you somewhere else, when the king shows up and you're not here, it'll be my head that'll roll. Oh, I ain't doing that. But he convinced him. He said, I will present myself before the king today. I will be here, and I will present myself. So Obadiah trusted him, and he goes back to the king, and he tells the king exactly where Elijah is, and Elijah and the king meet. That's found in chapter 18, verse 17 through 19. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is it you, you troublemaker of Israel? (laughs) And he answered him, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. In other words, what Elijah is saying, you should have recognized the consequences of following the Baals. You know, the, the, the worship of Baal was, was in many different forms, in many different ways. It would be like denominations of today in the Christian faith. There were different ways of worshiping Baal, so the plural there is, is sort of insightful to that. Your father and you have worshiped the Baals. It's you who have brought the consequences upon yourself and the people. It's not me. Don't shoot the messenger I'm telling you what God had already told you. If you pursue him, he will bless you. If you go against him, he will curse you and judge you. It's you and your father that have brought this on. Verse 19, now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now the scripture doesn't give us any indication that those prophets of Asherah, who probably were women, never left the table we don't know that they ever gathered there on mount carmel but the the proposition was made by elijah go go gather all of them 850 of them Uh, the rest of the narrative only talks about the 450 prophets of Baal. i don't know about that maybe the lord will set me straight one day and tell me oh yeah they were there i just didn't mention that so ahab sends for the people throughout all the land he wants all the people to come and gather Now, if you've got Mount Carmel in your mind as a singular mountain, that's the wrong thought here. This is actually a ridge. It it jets out from the Mediterranean, and it goes all the way in, miles in and south. It's a mountainous ridge, Mount Carmel. There's a particular place where they're going to meet, and I think it's because there's a particular place where it's thought that the Baal worship was most powerful and most significant. Carmel, by the way, means vineyard. It means garden. So you're getting in your mind these wonderful plateaus from the misty waters of the Mediterranean flowing and providing for that. And the rich volcanic soil there in that region was absolutely rich and productive, but everything was dry. There was no productivity in this place right now. So Elijah suggests that's the place. That would be the perfect place for God to reveal himself to all the people. So he says to Ahab, go gather all the people and bring the prophets and let's let's see what will happen. Now, as I mentioned, Mount Carmel is mentioned as like this place of worship for Baal. It's one of the high places. It's the sacred location for which they would go and worship. It would be like if you're a, a... a baseball team football team or whatever it would be the home field advantage for those prophets this would be the place they would be most accustomed to it's Baal's domain his power and presence was thought to be greater there 
So Elijah presented himself at the mass of the people, and listen what he says. To the people, he says, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer a word. Now, I want you to see from the outset, Elijah is going to move the people to make the right conclusion. This wasn't just a demonstration of God. This wasn't going to be in the end. One is going to be proved real. One is going to be proved fake. No, no, no. This is a call to decision. This isn't some people walking away from this and saying, yeah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he's the true God. No, no, it's way more than that. This is, you're going to see the evidence of who is real, and I'm demanding you to follow him. He's, he's calling for them to make a choice. This idea of them being quiet, they didn't mention a word when he says, how long are you going to keep on limping between these two? They didn't even answer him. They just kept quiet because they've got in their mind that they don't have to make a decision. Listen to me. Spiritual indecision is a decision. You cannot be a spiritual fence straddler. You're going nowhere in that. And if you're going nowhere, that means you are not going with Christ. He requires us to make the right decision, demands a conclusion of us. What was about to happen was not just proof who was the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It would not just prove the non-existence of Baal and Asherah or any other so-called God of the Canaanites or the Phoenicians. Elijah knew that Baal was the false god. He knew that supposedly he could control the rain or the thunder, but with just the uttering of the prophet of God's words, the rain and the thunder were no more. So he was certain that he was not a god. He also knew that God was about to reveal himself. And so here it is, the end of the three and a half years of judgment, and it was about to come to a dramatic conclusion. And in the end of that, people must be decisive so he called them to stop following Baal and start following the one existing supreme God so look at this word again how long will you go on limping between two different opinions and here's what I want you to focus on if the Lord is God follow him now the all caps there signify a particular name in the Bible you should go to the preface and just review those again what what those are the all caps is for jehovah the word jehovah means the existing one he is the existing god if the existing one is god and that word god is elohim so what he is saying there is if the existing one is the supreme one follow him that's the conclusion that Elijah wants us to to come to you've got to determine who is the existing one because he alone is the supreme one and if he is the existing one always has been always will be then he alone is supreme and then he comes to make this definitive conclusion of their life follow him 
In other words, if three and a half years have not proven that the Baals that you've been serving and the Asherah that you've been worshiping, if it doesn't prove that there is nothing to them, God is about to prove there's something to him, that he is the existing one and he is the supreme one. And at the end of this hour, you better be following him. That's the choice for us today. No matter if you're in Etowah County, Alabama, or you're somewhere else in Alabama, or somewhere in the United States of America, or you are somewhere on this world, that's the conclusion that you have to come to. There is only one who is the existing God. There is only one who is the supreme God. And you and I must follow him. Not standing in the middle wondering which one we're going to do not being indecisive, not opening our mouth, not willing to make a commitment, but following him means making a definitive decision. And that changes the way we live our lives. That changes the what, what entertains us. That changes the words that we use, the purposes that we have, the way we go into work, the way we study at school, the way we interact with family and friends and neighbors. It changes us because we know we serve the existing one who is the supreme one who we follow follow him it's what elijah is saying reminds me of the words of joshua before the people even entered into israel into the promised land he said choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers who serve beyond the jordan river what is he talking about he's talking about those gods throughout canaan those gods in egypt those gods in the region Joshua is saying, choose you this day who you're going to serve, whether it's the gods of your fathers or the God that you know to be your personal God who has come to you. He's saying, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. He's made a choice, and he's calling others to make a choice. Jesus called people to the same thing. He does it in a much more concise way. He says, follow me. Follow me. It's the notion that he is the existing one. He is the supreme one. Follow him. It's the same mantra that is there. So more than acknowledging Jesus, more than knowing about Jesus, more than claiming to know him or be like him, Jesus says, no, you follow me. Follow me. Be given to me entirely. Let the living word that now is with you, let it be you in you. Let it be in your mouth. Let it be in your purposes. Follow me in obedience in these steps. In other words, we are not only required to have the right theology, true theology must move us to right discipleship. See, if you don't have the right theology, you're never going to be a right disciple. But if you have the right theology, have the right understanding about God, the existing one, the supreme one, you come to know the conclusions of this word that, my friends, it means that you are going to be a disciple of him, that you're going to live your life in him, you're going to walk in him, in his purposes, in his ways. So, yes, you and I must have true theology. That's what Elijah is about to demonstrate, the power of God. The right theology is about to be evident. He alone is God. But more than just the right theology, it has to move you to the right discipleship. You have to journey in life in the right way. So having right theology moves us to right discipleship. And the prophet was sickened 
And he was astonished that the people were vacillating by, between being the disciples of Baal and Asherah and being that of God. And what he's saying to them, that's not possible. You can't be both. Jesus would say it this way. You can't serve God and money, mammon. You've got to make a choice to what is right and let the evidence of what your choice is be your discipleship. As we heard last week from Richard Ross, God despises any attempt to play the spiritual middle. It makes him sick. So he calls us to be utter disciples of his, complete disciples of his. So we should ask, is my surrender to Jesus evident in this moment? Throughout our day, we ought to be asking, is it evident that I'm a disciple of Jesus right now, that I'm thinking rightly about him and I'm exercising in that right way about him? Is it evident that I'm a disciple of his? Anything less than submission to him and his lordship would be carnal Christianity at its best and probably spiritual deception at its worst. Now let's pick up in the story of 1 Kings 18, in the middle of the, of the chapter, Elijah is suggesting that two altars are being prepared, one for the prophets of Baal and one for himself, representing the Lord, and each were to take a bull and to sacrifice that bull on the altar without kindling a fire. The challenge was for the prophets of Baal to call out to Baal and have Baal consume the, the offering with his fire. But he is the God of lightning. He is the God of thunder. He ought to be able to do this if he's real. So just lay that bull up there on that altar and you call out to him and if he consumes it with fire, we'll know he's the God. And so they began doing that. They began preparing the altar and they put the bull on the altar and they began calling out to him with great enthusiasm. And they are proclaiming from morning to noon, the Bible says, and nothing is happening. And so Elijah, with a lot of sarcasm and even some mockery about the craziness of all of this, he says, oh, you ought to call out louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on a journey somewhere. Listen, Elijah gets a little crude here. He says, maybe he's in the bathroom. You ought to really call loud. And they do. They elevate their voices and they march around and dance around and they take knives and they cut themselves hoping that he might with sympathy look their way and actually consume that which they're asking him to do. They're trying to appease him in all those ways. But when time expired, it was over. Nothing. Listen to the summation of the scripture regarding that. The scripture says there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Three no's. No voice, no answer, no attention. That sort of puts it into place, doesn't it? Is there a Baal? Is there an Asherah? Is there a Allah? Is there another God? No voice, no answer, and no attention. Nothing. Now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah prepares the altar. He has to rebuild it. It has been destroyed over time. Tells me that that was a high place that the people of Israel once worshipped Yahweh. And he takes the 12 stones that are no longer stacked and begins to repair the altar right there on Mount Carmel. And one by one, he places the stones in order. Judah, Simeon, Benjamin, Ephraim, 
Manasseh and Dan and Naphtali and Asher and Issachar and Zebulun and Gad and Reuben. He places all 12 stones in order and he's reflecting on those 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. In essence, he is saying in a very visual way to the people who are watching, you are the covenant people of God. You are from these 12 tribes and though you are divided in two kingdoms, God views you as one covenant people. And he has called you to serve him and him alone. The Spirit bears witness in the same way for us. The Scripture says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs. And heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's what he's saying there on that mountain. And it's what the Holy Spirit is confirming with us constantly. That we are the covenant people of God through Christ Jesus. To the church, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You are his possession. You proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what we are as we are gathering together today. This isn't, do I feel like going to church today? Do I feel like going and worshiping? Do I feel like going to life group? No, no, no. You are a chosen race, a holy people, a people belonging to God who become together on every God's day, Sunday, that we might remind ourselves of who we are. We are the people of God. And so that altar was built up, and listen to the ending of this. Chapter 18, verse 36, O Lord God, Elijah says, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back listen to that that you have turned their hearts back you want to know about the providential sovereignty of God boy you can find it right there it wasn't the people turning back to God it was God turning them back to him you think you can come back to God you you think you can come to the Lord and receive him make him Lord of your life oh no my friends he is Lord he is sovereign and he is moving and initiating a love relationship with you and calling you to himself just like he's calling these people to himself he was turning their hearts back to him i like it better that way i want everything to be on god i want my salvation to be on god i want my sustaining grace to be God's sustaining grace given to me. I want the providence of his care and guidance. I want him to hold me all the way to the culmination of my salvation, the glorification of my body. I want it from the point of beginning all the way to the completion to be resting fully on God and none of it on me. I want him to find me submissive to him, subject to him. And that's what God is doing here. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people of God saw it, look what they did. They fell on their face and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You know what he's saying there? Jehovah, the existing one, he is Elohim, the supreme one. He is God. 
How do you turn a sinful nation that's idolatrous to the Lord? Well, I tell you how that happens because Elijah shows it. He reveals the way back. It's through sacrifice. Oh, not their sacrifice like we might think. It's God's sacrifice. Some of you may be asking, how do you come back? You've been worshiping something else. Materialism, power, lust, money, church. And you might be asking, how do I, how do I come back? Elijah is revealing how we're led back. It's through God's sacrifice. Once the shock and awe of seeing the fire fall from heaven and the feeling of the heat of the glorious flames, the people stood along Elijah and they saw that everything was consumed. Listen to this. This is the important part of the story. The bull was gone, totally consumed by God. The wood was incinerated. The stones were obliterated. The dust was annihilated. and The water was evaporated. Everything was gone. And that was not just the awesomeness of God. That was God saying that I am fully satisfied with everything that is demonstrated right here. All that Elijah has proposed for me, an, a sacrifice, I fully received that. You know why? It's way more than this moment here on Mount Carmel. This, this is pointing us to what would take place 900 years later, about 50 miles east of there on another mount, the Mount Moriah because there on Mount Moriah on a little elevated place on a, on a crook that looked like a skull called Gagatha there was a man a God man who would be raised between earth and heaven suspended there bearing the sin of all of mankind as a substitutionary sacrifice for all who have put their faith and trust in him and God would exercise his full wrath and justice against that sin and Jesus would fully receive that and he would say in the end it is finished God is fully satisfied in other words every Everything is consumed that's what this picture is it's way more than a declaration over the gods of Baal and Asherah it is a declaration that God is the existing supreme one listen to this who is merciful and gracious and reconciling God met those wicked, sinful people right there on that mount. And go over to the east, and God met us, wicked, sinful people on Calvary. Amen. And he is portraying, he alone is Jehovah. He alone is Elohim the first witness that made a statement after Jesus' death was the guy in charge of the execution and those with him said at the conclusion as the earth shook and all the things happened he said in conclusion truly this is the son of God What do you say? Is Jesus the existing one? 
the supreme one? You say, oh, he is. Then follow him. Follow him. Let's pray. In this moment, Father, I pray that you're calling some to salvation and many who walk in salvation to a walk in discipleship that's true and evident that you, the eternal existing one who is supreme, dwells within them. I pray that our mind, our purposes, our lives would be given in discipling of him. To the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen.